Welcome to the World Stage, Newpiece podcast on world affairs. My name is Tor Olav Eversen. Um, I am a senior research fellow here at Newpi. And with me, I have my colleague, uh, research professor, Cedric de Koenig. Today, we will have a conversation about how we should think about building peace in both abstract and practical terms. Cedric is the originator of the concept of adaptive peace building, which he has developed over several years. And quite recently, um, he was part of one of the editors of the newly published anthological book, Adaptive Peace Building, a new approach to sustaining peace in the 21st century. So I would like to start with a bit of like a historical perspective. So where does this uh, concept of peace building come from? Thank you very much, Torolov, and lovely to to have this conversation with you. Um, I think it, it, of course, originated um, with our own uh, famous uh, Norwegian uh, peace philosopher, uh, Johan Goltung, um, and was further developed uh, from some of his original thoughts, I would say, in, in the United Nations and, and related contexts. But essentially, when we talk about peace building, we are uh, talking about the part of the, the work we are doing to help societies either to prevent uh, conflict, violent conflict especially, or to um, assist them with the recovery coming out of conflict. Um, and in the past, there was uh, out of, you know, the, let's say, 1992 Agenda for Peace, for instance, which was a policy document in the United Nations that coined these terms uh, in kind of polic- in the policy context. So in that context, originally, there was this distinction between, you know, first you try to prevent conflict. Uh, if you don't succeed, then you have to make conflict through, uh, to, through, through mediation and so on. You have to make peace. Uh, uh, sorry, you have to make peace. And if you, once you've reached some kind of a peace agreement, then you can keep the peace through peacekeeping. And once you've kind of established the peace, then you consolidate the peace through peace building. But... I think we've learned since then that these kind of very neat conceptual categories doesn't really work in real real life. Uh, all these things, uh, prevention, peacemaking, peacekeeping, peace building, are happening at the same time in you know a context like the uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo or Somalia or Myanmar or. Afghanistan or any of these conflicts that we that we are engaging with as an international community. So really overall I would say it's about how we as uh, uh, peace builders, and this can be local peace builders or national peace builders or international peace builders, how we help and engage with societies to help them prevent conflict or to help them recover from conflict. That would be kind of my broad approach to understanding peace building. Thank you, Cedric. Um, so w- one sort of um, uh, historical period or model that you touch upon quite a lot in your writings on, on peace building is this liberal model of peace. Uh, I was wondering if you could give us like just a short introduction and some historical context for that uh, model. Yeah, a liberal peace building is, you know, one of those concepts that are, that are so broad that one can't really define it very clearly. But in, in simplified terms, this would refer to uh, the belief, the understanding, the approach to peace building, where we 
assume that uh, Western liberal values and institutions, democracy, human rights, rule of law, meaning equality before the law, free market economy, that these values and institutions have worked well to um, establish uh, peaceful states in Europe after the Second World War. Uh, we also have this democratic peace theory that democracies don't go to war with each other. And so in broad terms, it's the idea that if other countries were to adopt these liberal values and institutions, they would also be more peaceful. And of course, this comes from the, let's say, you know, post-Cold War unipolar era, where for the last um, uh, several decades, uh, we've basically had a, a, a world system where one set of values, the liberal set of values, dominated the international system and therefore also peace building. And so liberal peace was, in a sense, the dominant approach to peace building over this period. Um, but uh, that has now been been challenged, and that's partly the, the kind of critical peace building school uh, that have challenged liberal peace building. I would say, you know, this adaptive peace building approach is part of that overall larger family of the critical approach to the liberal peace building. So... Um what has been the main criticisms from adaptive peace building and other sources? I think, first of all, it may be interesting to think about that the, the criticism is not so much about the values, but about the idea that uh, one society can diagnose the challenge in, a, in another society and uh, make a prognosis, a diagnosis, and prescribe a cure, the liberal peace in this context, uh, and, and help another society to, to, to become peaceful by adopting uh, this set of values that come from, from um, uh, you know, one set of, 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 of uh, let's say, societies or a social system. So it's, it's about the process of, you know, how does one society help another society uh, to, re to prevent conflict or to sustain peace or to recover from conflict. I think the process is really what's at stake here. And this, this uh, criticism, both in terms of the transferability of values, uh, as well as the kind of right to self-determination concept that we have in international law and the Charter of the United Nations and so forth. Um, but then especially this notion that you are able to, uh, in a fairly uh, predictable way, uh, help a society to become peaceful from a theoretical or a broad approach that has worked in one society and you assume that it could work in another society as well. Um, has this criticism grown in strength with uh, the... Uh, interventions in, for instance, Afghanistan and Iraq and those kinds of peace and state-building projects? Absolutely. I, I think, uh, you know, the critical peace-building school, in a sense, have, have come over the last 20, 30 years out of noticing that this approach to peace-building has not necessarily produced the outcomes that that uh, was assumed that it will, will produce. Um, and this, uh, of course, has come to a... Uh, 
you know, it's the, probably the, the most clearest example is the Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul and, and the kind of realization that, you know, these are one of those examples where a significant effort have been made uh, militarily and in uh, through development assistance and through governance and various programs. Um, and so it's not the criticism sometimes in the past when you look at some of the other processes could have been, well, not enough was done, there wasn't enough investment in resources or the uh, security guarantees wasn't really strong enough. So in that sense, the Afghanistan case, of course, is the, is the example where a significant effort, effort has been done. But the criticism goes, I think, far beyond the Afghanistan case. You know, there's a, there's a much broader set of cases where um, scholars and practitioners have realized that this particular approach to peace building has not produced the outcomes that, that it uh, thought it would produce. Um, very interesting. So um, now I w would like to get um, a bit more into the specifics of adaptive peace building. So what is adaptive peace building and what, re what really separates it from other kinds of models like the one we just discussed? Mm -hmm. I would say there are three core tenets of, of adaptive peace building. The first being a recognition that the societies that we are trying to assist when, when as you know, local to global peace builders, we are working to help prevent conflict or to sustain peace processes, that those societies are inherently complex. Um, and therefore, we cannot predict beforehand what the process would be, the causal chain of events that will lead to a peaceful outcome. Um, so that's the first tenant. The second tenant then is that because of that recognition, the way we need to develop knowledge and engage with those societies and try to influence them is through an iterative adaptive process of learning by doing. In other words, exploring a number of options and based on the feedback that that generates, uh, continuously adapt and learn because we, we cannot predict beforehand exactly what the causal chain will be. We have to work it out as we go along. And then the third tenant is that this has to be done with the full engagement of the society that we are trying to assist. So this notion that the society is somehow passive and the international peace builder is the expert that makes the diagnosis, prescribes the solution, and, and the, the local society is just the recipient, like a patient of the medicine. Right? So the adaptive peace building approach recognizes fully that you know, social systems to be sustainable, the peace has to come from within, it has to make sense in the context, cultural, historical context of that society, and it has to emerge through that participatory process of trial and error. Institutions, social, local social institutions are built over time through trial and error. So peace is not something which you can just accept from someone else as a kind of a blueprint that you just implement. It is something that you need to work on as a society and continue to, to improve. Um, I think an important point here as well is that this is not something applicable only to societies that are currently affected by conflict. 
we can see in the developed world as well that has been you know so relatively peaceful over the last few decades that if you don't continuously work on striving to sustain peace in your society even those developed societies can go through periods where they experience violent conflict or where even the the existing system can can be threatened in a significant way so um i would like to go get a bit more into that question of uh, where these peace building processes should really be uh, understood as embedded um and in in the newly released anthology you suggest that in line with what you're saying that peace building should be understood as an essentially local process so what kind of like policy implications does that have for for instance the UN or the blue helmets that we often see in the media portrayed as these people that go to a certain country like South Sudan or the, the Democratic Republic of Congo and sort of build the peace mm. in 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 the media discourse, mm. discourse. No absolutely I think this is a very strong concept that comes from this idea that you know the United Nations or someone else has the solution and it has the ability to bring about peace by by going to a society and supporting them um what we and and others have seen through our peace research is that you know peace is not something that uh, can come from an external actor an external actor can support a peace process so for instance a united nations peacekeeping operation can be critical in a very fragile period to provide security guarantees to encourage the different parties to a peace agreement to implement that agreement to support with institutional processes but it's not the peacekeeping operation that makes the peace it is the the national actors the parties to the conflict civil society state institutions and the degree to which they are working and striving to peace which will make that peace process a success or not and i think we have uh, you know we in this bro- broader process we are focused so much on trying to professionalize the peace um the business of peace right so peacekeeping uh, mediators uh, so on trained them created standards uh, improved knowledge and skills improved our knowledge of processes that we have pres- perhaps taken our eye too much away from the societies that are in conflict and the people in those societies that are critical to make peace and so when i say peace building is essentially local i mean that the international actors or it could be you know if it's a local conflict national actors but those actors that are not part of this immediate society affected by conflict that are supporting that process that they can only play a supporting role a facilitating role the peace has to come from within those societies themselves those societies themselves have to build the social institutions to manage the peace process without that peace cannot be sustainable so how can we practically strike this balance between international support and like local i think you formulate it as self organization yes it it is a delicate balance which i think first of all could come from a recognition by the external peace builders the national or international peace builders of understanding this balance of understanding their role so it's a kind of a 
self-limiting role that, that one needs to play. Because typically this is asymmetrical relationships. The national or international actors um, have significant resources. So it's very easy for them to overwhelm the, the national actors. There's various incentives in terms of you know, spending money, providing support that can all contribute to very easily um, the, the external actors um, playing a larger than useful role in a peace process. So it's very much a, a, a responsibility, I think, of the external actors to, to, to acknowledge that danger of them overstepping their role and, and uh, holding back and uh, allowing as much space as possible for the national actors to fill. So I think it's, that's the key uh, because it will not necessarily, uh, in, in some cases where you have strong national actors and institutions, uh, they of course can signal and play that role that you know we, we, this is our process, you can support us, but we control it. And we've seen many of those, those kind of developments but in many other cases, the, the society has been so disrupted by the conflict that it really has to come from the external actors themselves. Um, so would you say that uh, these kinds of principles have been, uh, of the adaptive peace building, have been uh, applied in, in practice? And uh, what, what are the experiences there? Yes, I mean, let me first of all say that uh, a lot of what I'm explaining here in terms of the importance of national actors and so on is is recognized in official UN and other external actors approaches to peace building. But we still see a significant gap between this kind of acknowledged uh, recognition of the role of, of uh, local peace building and the reality uh, of how peace building is being done. And this is because there are, as I mentioned before, many incentives that drive international and national actors to end up playing a larger role than, than is maybe desirable. But to then go more to your question, um, there, I, I do notice that um, a lot of uh, development and peace building actors are uh, increasingly experimenting with or adopting approaches like adaptive development, adaptive peace building, adaptive governance, especially in the sustainability and, and, and uh, natural resources context. And these different approaches, adaptive governance, adaptive development, adaptive peace building, all, all share this core recognition of you know, having to develop our knowledge about the conflict systems, uh, not from a preconceived, uh, let's say, inductive approach to knowledge, but to a deductive approach of knowledge, of, of learning from engaging. And also then when we try to engage with these societies to, to support them in their process, that that also has to be done in a way that uh, involves these societies and, as much as possible in that process. So it's not about consulting them about the solutions we have thought out before, but it's about working out those solutions together with these communities um, and societies as, as we engage with them. So I do see more and more um, actors picking up on that. And uh, yeah, I can I can give you some, some examples, but yes, I don't please. want to go on too, too much. Yeah. 
uh, I, I think if you could get into a couple of examples, yeah. that would be very nice. Okay. Um, I mean, one one example I can share, which we have been, uh, we meaning myself and, and, and a colleague, Emery Brousset, have been specifically involved in is helping the United Nations to develop a performance assessment system for United Nations peacekeeping operations, which we, in, and in the design of that system, we've very much used uh, complexity theory and uh, adaptive approaches and, and built it into that uh, system. And that system is, is now being implemented and rolled out throughout uh, the United Nations peacekeeping operations. So in a big institution, you know, involving 80,000 or so people across 12 or more operations with a budget of maybe $4 billion or something at this stage. So, so a sizable institution. Um, and the essence of, of, of that approach in, in that context has been, first of all, to recognize this, con this need for context specificity. So in the past, very often a program like this, an assessment process like this, would have been um, developed based on a number of criteria uh, designed at the headquarters and then implemented across all the different missions. But in this case, uh, we suggested that each mission should develop its own results framework based on its own assessment of how what they need to do to implement their mandate successfully. Um, so that context specificity, context specificity of each mission's own performance assessment system, I think, was a critical element that reflects some of this thinking. And then secondly, traditionally with evaluations, you would carry out a program and maybe evaluate a program mid-term, mid, mid so over three years, maybe once or so, to inform the next phase of the program. But what we recognize in, in this adaptive approach is the need for a much more frequent iterative process of staking stock of, of what you have learned from your implementation of projects. So we have recommended a kind of a quarterly process where the various units within these operations dealing with specific objectives like protection of civilians or support to, to humanitarian assistance and so on, meet and take stock of the degree to which the activities that they've undertaken are actually contributing to the outcomes they want to achieve or not. So that speaks to a very iterative, adaptive process of learning. And so I think one of the things you can maybe hear from what I'm explaining is a performance assessment system that is not based on um, accountability, uh, of course, that is one of the outcomes for funding, but more a performance assessment system that is based on generating information that can facilitate adaptation. So how can these peace operations learn from what they're doing on a continuous basis to make sure that they, are, they perform as optimally as possible? So that would be you know, one example of how these, these ideas, which could sign, sound very theoretical, can be implemented in a very practical way. Great, very interesting. Um, you, you also mentioned that uh, at some point, like from the UN, that there's a recognition of a lot of these kinds of um, uh, principles of more like bottom-up perspectives in peace buildings and things like that, um, that are also present uh, in adaptive peace building. But you also said that perhaps sometimes the incentives don't align to actually uh, to put that into practice. So, what what kind of incentives and uh, obstacles ob, uh, obstacles do you think there are to, to actual implementation? 
I think this is a very important question, and of course it, it, it relates to introducing any kind of uh, new set of ideas to an existing bureaucracy or, or a system. There, there would always be you know, those that uh, have an incentive or, or let's say have vested interest in the existing system and, and those that, that see uh, benefit in adopting a new, new approach or, or new ideas. Um, so I think the, some of the important elements is to, to understand how a new system, in this case a kind of a adaptive approach to performance assessment, if we use that example, for instance, uh, of the peacekeeping operation performance assessment system, um, how that creates benefits for the system, how, how adopting such a new system actually helps the institution to be, let's say, more effective, or uh, other particular uh, you know, benefits, because um, most people usually think about the cost, right? I have to put in a significant effort now to meet with others, to discuss these issues. I have to unlearn a new set of concepts and a new approach. So for people to be, to be willing to uh, absorb that cost, they need to see clear benefits. And it's always a bit of a chicken and egg. You, 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 you can suggest benefits at the beginning, but they are not necessarily proven yet. So again, accompanying that process very closely and learning as you, as you start to adopt it to identify the benefits and then feeding that back into the system so that as the system is implemented, um, the benefits become, you know, are captured and become more clear. And what's interesting in most of these contexts is that the benefits are not always what you thought they would be at the outset. Right, so so it's important when you assess these kind of things not to look only for those results that you anticipate, but to be open to see what effects are you generating, uh, positive or negative, intended or unintended, because uh, often there are unintended negative consequences that you need to deal with and to avoid, but often there are also unintended positive consequences that you need to capture and identify and build into the system. I think as a, as a last point in our conversation, I would like to get into some of the more abstract details, which I, uh, as a researcher, find quite fascinating about adaptive peace building. Uh, and that is the fact that it draws a lot upon uh, complexity theory, which is this concept with, uh, which I think originates in system dynamics. So uh, what characterizes complexity uh, in, in, in the case of peace, peace building? Um, absolutely, uh, this uh, whole concept of adaptive peace building, adaptive development, others are, are very much based on an understanding that the systems we are engaging with are complex. And what that means in a scientific uh, context is that they are highly dynamic uh, and therefore unpredictable and uncertain. So a lot of how we think about peace or development uh, you know, had a tendency to be uh, to assume a kind of a linear causal chain of events. You know, the the, the log frame that we are always referring to in development assistance. Uh, this need to set out from the outset a clear causal path about how your programmatic intervention is going to produce a certain outcome. A a recognition of the complexity of these systems. Uh, make us recognize that that is 
impossible to do, to, to understand beforehand what the causal path will be. Um, and that is because these systems are, are inherently um, dynamic and nonlinear, uh, which means that they are what we in complexity terms refer to as emergent. In other words, um, there are constantly new system behaviors that develop that is not that you cannot trace back just to the uh, existence of let's say those elements in the in the in the various parts that make up the system these are thing, these are new things that come about as a result of the interaction amongst the various elements in a system now in a social context the elements are people and institutions and societies are are, are also complex in the same way uh, if not more than let's say you know some uh, material systems like the way gases operate under pressure for instance but if you look at biological systems ecosystems or societies we we, we recognize that they are even they even even have a much greater range of behavior and and possible um, uh, deviation from previous behavior than than you see in um, let's say most material systems. Maybe one way to explain this is to make a distinction between complicated systems and complex systems. A complicated system would be something like a spaceship or a rocket that we recognize takes significant knowledge uh, and experimentation. To, to develop, to build a rocket that you can send from you know, the Earth to the Moon, uh, as India has recently done, takes you know, several knowledge of several disciplines and integrating that and then experimenting with various models and learning from that. But once you have more or less uh, a, a succeeded in developing a rocket that you can successfully send to space a couple of times, you can do that with a high degree of predictability, um, as we as we can see from our own space history, but social systems are significantly different. So, for instance, uh, I'm from South Africa, and we went through this major transition in in 1994 from the apartheid system to to democracy, and there were various um, mechanisms that we used during that during that time, and subsequently. Many people in the peacebuilding community have tried to replicate some of those successful mechanisms like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission or the National Peace Accord systems in other conflicts. And it has never worked in the same way. And I think this is the difference between a complex system and a complicated system. This irreproducibility of what has worked in one context in another context uh, so this is precisely what's different between, let's say, an engineering or mechanical approach to uh, building peace and a complex approach to building peace. So this is how complexity then informs our thinking about how do we understand a conflict, how do we try to influence a society to help them prevent conflict or sustain their peace process, but also how we as an organization, let's say the United Nations, understand our own engagement with that very complex system and recognizing also some of the complexities we have in our own institutions and systems. Uh, thank you. Um, that's a fascinating example with South Africa. I think one of the things that um, uh, for me has sort of been a useful 
thing to remember in dealing with something as abstract as complexity theories is as exactly like exactly how you describe emergence, something that's more than the sum of its parts, uh, and uh, like this, uh, which so, some systems from climate to human consciousness to peace building uh, share. Um, yes, so uh, I think uh, that's it for all the questions I have today. So thank you so much, Cedric. It was really fascinating uh, talking to you about this very important and interesting uh, concept. Thank you so much, Rolf. Yeah, I enjoyed really sharing and discussing. And thanks for your questions and for this opportunity to, to discuss adaptive peace building with you.